Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, today we are more intertwined with technology than we could have ever imagined. And when I say that, your mind immediately probably goes to the mobile phone you've probably got in your hand, if not in your pocket. But there are those out there who have a much closer relationship with technology, so much so that you might go as far to say that we are in the new era of a hybrid human. Harry Parker, author of Hybrid Humans, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Man and Machine, joins me now. Welcome to the program, Harry. Um, Your story is a fascinating, uh, tragic and inspiring one in many ways. Would would you mind uh, explaining me a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Jonathan. Yeah, so I I, I served in the in the British Army for, for, for a while when I was in my 20s. And I was, um, you know, like, like some of the injured soldiers, it's a, it's a pretty, a pretty standard story. But I was um, patrolling in Helmand on a foot patrol, and I stood on an IED and improvised explosive device. Uh, and I was very seriously injured, I lost my left leg straight away and was casavacked sort of by helicopter and vehicle back to the to the frontline hospital, and then later lost my second leg. And then went into quite a long period of rehabilitation of learning to use prosthetics and 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 sort of getting getting used to being disabled basically only because it is such a um it's it's such a terrifying incident i i mean i'd love you to maybe tell me what, what was it like to to go through something like that because it's something that we see on film and um and yet is one of the sad realities of war that these sort of things happen when that ied went off what 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 went through your head? Yeah, I mean, I think, and and also any young twenty-something person thinks it's never going to happen to them. You know, whether you're mountain biking or surfing or or doing something dangerous, you sort of feel invincible. Yeah, and, um, and I think that's the same for most soldiers, and it certainly felt like that. I was sort of, you know, there was an arrogance to it. You know, walking around in someone else's country and with your weapons and thinking that you were trying to make a difference, and then in in that split second it all changed. And I think the first, the first thought that went through my mind was, well, I'll just dust myself up and, and stand back up. But I pretty quickly, um, yeah, pretty quickly the pain and, and the sort of grim reality that it wasn't just, it wasn't just something I was going to be able to pick myself up the, up off the floor. And then, yeah, just, uh, well, I, I, I mean, I explain it in the book um, a bit at the start about sort of how I became hybrid. And I think, you know, when you look at sort of popular culture and and the sort of superheroes, there's always that origin story, the way they sort of they, they get their powers. And and I think for a lot of disabled people, you know, you're not getting powers, you're, you're getting the the opposite. But certainly the way that you become disabled or you acquire acquire a disability can have an impact on the way you sort of view it and and how you how you learn to recover from it. I think you describe yourself as as a hybrid, and this is. Um a result of the operations that you had trying to restore your mobility after this horrific um, incident. What exactly happened? What were the options given to you and how did you end up um, with the sort of technology that you have in your body now? Yeah, I think um, just going back to that that idea of the hybrid, I I think when I was, it's t- I wrote the book about 10 years after I was injured and I think, there's that that, there's those sort of labels out there of disabled and disability and it never really fitted with me and I think when I started to write this book I was looking around for maybe a better a better word that described how I felt and also the technologies I used and I think hybrid humans is something that I sort of stumbled across 
and actually by the end of the book I suppose in terms of the journey I went on during the book I actually became much more comfortable with the idea of being a disabled person I think that was one thing that sort of was one of the really transformational things about writing this but in terms of the actual technologies I think you know again really lucky in in a way to be an injured soldier because we're just given the best kit and critically the best rehabilitation you know it's half about the technology but it's also about the human you know the 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 the, the biological part and how fit and healthy it is how it's trained to use this equipment so so in terms of the equipment i've got a, a bionic um knee sort of microprocessor knee on my right side because i'm amputated above the knee and then on my left side, I have my own biological knee and I have a sort of carbon fiber blade. And, and there's lots of different components and they're all attached to me by prosthetic sockets and liners um, and things like that. Right. And um, I want to get to the, the microprocessor in your knee in a second. But in terms of your legs, you said there's different. Are there different sort of tools um, and that give you different function? So, so I think that is one of the things I sort of thought about a lot in the book. Sometimes when I'm walking around uh, around town, people will sort of stop and say, stop me and say, um, you know, can you run faster than you, you could before or can you jump high? And I sort of have to say, actually, I can't run at all in these legs. I have to swap in a new knee and I can't jump at all. And I think that's one of the things, you know, we look at like the, the para, Paralympics and there's people sprinting on the track and and actually maybe prosthetics could could overcome or could outdo biology in some senses on the running track. But if you were then to ask somebody to make a cup of tea uh, in, in, a, in a running blade, there, you know, they wouldn't be able to balance and it would be really difficult. So, right. so I think, yeah, I have a number of different legs. I have a running leg, a cycling leg, but actually the, the microprocessor needs the sort of all-rounder. It's the sort of, um, you know, it's, it's the all-round car. Six million dollar man situation. Yeah, yeah it, it's as close to that as, as you can get. Yeah, but it's... Um, so what, this is this is the Genium X3 microprocessor knee. What, what does it do and why is it so special? So it's made by a company called Autobot. I suppose why it's so special is because it it essentially does a, it takes a lot of the sort of cognitive load from the amputee. So a traditional mechanical knee that doesn't have uh, any sort of uh, microprocessor or does any thinking for you um, takes a lot of practice and thought and you have to be very careful going downstairs and if you stumble it doesn't have any way of sort of um a, a sort of of stopping you fall whereas the microprocessor knee has a load of sort of algorithms and sensors that are taking all the information from how fast you're walking what sort of slope you're on and then those those sensors feed that information into the algorithm at you know hundreds hundreds of thousands of bits of information a, a second and then come out with, with sort of the approaches and, and that controls a cylinder a sort of uh, a cylinder in the knee that controls controls the movement or the gait pattern if that mm. makes that makes sense Jonathan I hope it does yeah yeah no it does I mean it sounds extremely sophisticated and that gives you a much more fluid um stride I suppose yeah, it gives you more fluid stride, and you know now I can. I've got I've got some young children at the moment. I can I can walk around with one of them on my shoulders and feel fairly comfortable. Wow. I'm not going to fall um, as long as it's you know I can do it on the beach or on on pebbles. But if it's flat enough, I can do it. But just for instance, going downstairs, it, it sort of yields very predictably, um, and I can put all my weight through it, and it won't just collapse. Where the sort of more um, traditional prosthetics that you people might know from from sort of from the past would you know you'd have you'd, you'd probably go down a little bit more gingerly I suppose yeah 
because you, you weren't sure where where the the tipping point might be. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Okay. Um. So the the book um is sort of an exploration of you know I suppose becoming a hybrid human, and of, of course there are people who have um, prosthetics who fit into that category, and then there's a whole host of other ways in which we can be hybrid, and it struck me I was talking at an event uh, a while back and talking about the the advent of of this um, sort of cyborg reality. And it struck me that this is probably the last generation that will see humans buried just as they were born, with just bones only. And it, it seems very likely to me that by the time I have died, I will have had some sort of electronic or some sort of implant in me. And certainly the likelihood that my children um, in a developed country anyway uh, will be buried just as bones it seems very unlikely that we are wittingly or unwittingly entering this extraordinary next generation of homo sapiens and, and that is the, the cyborg or hybrid human tell me about some of the, the people that you met um, and the, the sort of slants on this um, idea of hybrid humans that you came across yeah, I mean, I think you, just just picking up on what you were saying about us becoming more and more hybrid, you, you know, you just have to look at um, hip replacements or stents and shunts in people's in people's hearts and, and and valves and things. And so, so I look at that a bit in, in hybrid humans. But I, what what I think, um, so I think, yeah, we're becoming far more hybrid. And you know, sort of one way of thinking about that is that m- medical infections are now worldwide the majority of them in hospital are caused by some sort of implant. Now that might be, you know, your catheter, which if you do get an infected, there's a very low chance of you, of you getting sepsis and dying. But if it's your, if it's your mechanical heart, uh, your, your pacemaker, should I say, then it's, there's very high chance of you, of you, you of mortality from that sort of thing. So, so I think we are becoming far more hybrid. What was interesting about the book is, is that, and it slightly goes back to that thing about what, people see when they look at me they see something very technological and they see my prosthetics and I work quite hard to make it look easy but what they don't see is the sort of interface between the the, the prosthetic and the human which is still completely suboptimal you know I it's hot in the summer it rubs you know sometimes I get sort of really bad lower back pain because of what it's doing to sort of my anatomy um you know, I can get infections, which I need, you know, more drugs. And, and some people would even say that's a sort of type of hybridity when you're, when you're getting, being given sort of drugs and things like that. So I think that's one of the part of the book is that actually there is a cost to, um, to, to being hybrid. Uh, and that's not to say that the therapeutic benefits of this stuff aren't incredible. You know, I, it's amazing that I can even walk around how I do and carry my kids. But, but um, I think uh, there are costs and we should be really aware of those. I think one one person I met who's actually someone I'd met it when I was blown up. He's blown up at a similar time to me, and he'd never managed to to get up on his legs in the same way that a lot of us had. And that was for lots of reasons, you know, muscle loss and nerve damage, and the fact that he had quite short stumps. And so, ten years later, he was still in a wheelchair and only using his prosthetics very rarely. Mm. And then he had a thing called osseointegration, which um, is a is a a procedure where surgeons drill out the the core of his femur and stuff in an implant with a hammer. I mean, it's that rudimentary. Wow. Uh, and then sew, sew up the skin around the implant so that he has 
a um, a stoma, sort of permanent hole in his skin, and out of that sticks a sticks a metal attachment, and then he can just stick his genium. He has the same leg as me. He can stick stick his genium X three straight onto onto the body, and it's also called direct skeletal fixation. Um, it's actually quite common in dental implants. It's the same technology, uh, but it but it's much rarer in sort of in prosthetics. So he ha- he has sort of like a like a socket coming out of his thigh well if you were to look at his his stump yeah his thigh they would just you all you would see is a little um a, a little cylinder of metal coming out the bottom and wow then, and then and he instead of having to put it on a big carbon fiber socket that's hot and rubs and 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 it's quite uncomfortable he just sticks his 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 legs straight onto that onto that implant that's sticking out of him and when i first spoke to him about it said it's you know it's like going commando because it because you suddenly you know you could feel the, the 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 wind around his stumps that he hadn't felt for, <laughs> for years um but with it comes huge risks in terms of infection and if it's to if it was to fail then there's no really there's no way there's no way to go after that you know it could really affect the the, the femur you could get a deep bone infection and things like that so it's a risk but it was a risk he was willing to take because he felt well even if it lasts only five years then at least it's five years i haven't spent in a wheelchair um, you also met people who were, uh, I suppose, tinkering with themselves um, in a way they, they didn't have to. Um, and this uh, is a, an area that fascinates me, the world of the biohacker. Can yeah. you tell me a, a little bit about the, the sort of people that you met and the things they were doing to their bodies to, to become hybrid? Yeah, so I will actually, I, I met one of the sort of first biohackers. I went to his house and, and he's a guy called Kevin Warwick that some people might remember from from back in the sort of nineties, and he, yeah. what he he did was he put um, a, a RFID chip into his into his hand, or into his wrist, should I say, and then controlled um, elements of the university building in Reading. And he also flew out to America and controlled a robotic hand back in Reading. But but in but, but in that part of hybrid humans in the book, I I also talk about some of the some of the more sort of experimental biohackers who are mostly out in America who are sort of working in their basements and putting implants uh, into them. I mean, there's, there's, there's a, there's a few sort of uh, quite common ones out there. People who are putting magnets into themselves. There's a thing called the North star, which people implant on their, on their sternum and essentially tells you when you're, you're facing North. So you have a sort of sense of direction that is slightly different. I mean, what? So they have a a, a magnet on their chest and how do they know when the magnets so, like so it's more than a magnet it's a sort of it's an implant but as they as they move around every time they turn through north it vibrates so <laughs> and that becomes like a sense there's a really interesting guy called neil harbison who who is actually a european guy but he had he's colorblind and he couldn't see color so he got when he was at university he got some people to invent a sort of ang it, it's sort of an implant that's attached so it's it's attached with osseointegration, the same thing that this friend of mine had, but but it's attached to his skull and hangs over the front of his face. It's kind of like an anglerfish. Exactly, um, exactly. Light. Yeah, and he he can he used the, the implant can um, vibrate with different colours, so it has a certain reso- resonance when he it's seeing or when it's perceiving orange to red, but also he can make it perceive infrared and things that humans can't. So that's sort of proper cyborg territory where you go mm. beyond human capabilities which is far beyond anything that i've got yeah and and um my understanding is that uh, for some of these guys uh, and and ladies that when they um 
incorporate this sort of thing, they get quite used to that sensation. It becomes quite a natural thing. And I think with Harbison, he got the sense of of color in a way that you you know it it transcends just you know getting a vibration. He, his brain started to take in this signal and actually produce something not maybe not how we'd perceive color, but much more than just the vibration, right? Yeah. Did these things turn into real signals of importance? Yeah, I think in the book, one of the things I looked at quite a lot was neuroplasticity and how you know, the, the brain can keep learning. And it's something we've only really found out in the last 20 years, really, with, with brain image, brain scanning. So we can actually see in real time the brain working and how that it how that it's developing. But, you know, we used to think that after, once you become an adult, your, your brain is essentially set. But now we know that it, it's far more malleable and it can continue to learn. But I suppose why that's interesting is when I was learning to use my prosthetics, you know, at the start, I had to be very, I had to think very consciously about what I was doing because it was quite unnatural. But very quickly, the body, you know, my body and my brain learned how to, how it, it became un- subconscious and I could walk around without thinking about it. Yeah. But that took quite a long time. And I think that's, that's one thing that's quite sort of encouraging uh, for people with disabilities and anyone who's going to become a hybrid in the future is that our brains can deal with this, you know, yeah. just in the same way I think someone can learn to use a, uh, one of those, um, you know, diggers. When you first use it, you're thinking about it very, very carefully. But after a while, it's like the digger is part of your, part of you. It's like an extension. You sort of embody the digger. Sorry, it's a slightly random <laughs> example, but it's, it feels the same. Reading the book, um, it seems to me that you you come to terms with what happened to you in Afghanistan. And as a, you know, a 20 year old man with the world ahead of him, losing your legs in that accident, as you did, it seems like for many people, they would, you know, that would be a, a, a very negative experience that, um, that they would look back on for the rest of their lives and, and wish that the world had gone a different way that day. Is that how you feel about it? It's really hard to sort of talk about this because everyone's experiences are so diff- different, I think, Jonathan. And f- but for me, you know, if when I think about what happened to me, if it hadn't happened, I'd be, you know, I'd still be in the military and God, that would be awful. And actually, my life's been far more interesting and so many new experiences. And I think one of and I don't want to sort of get too go too far down this route. But, you know, I was a I was a sort of part of a soldier fraternity and and everything that came with that and actually being injured opened me up to whole new levels of sort of empathy and people and and experience that I never would have had otherwise and and you know we people talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and there are lots of people who say oh Harry how did you deal with your PTSD and I'd have to just say well I, I didn't actually have any PTSD and they'd sort of shake their heads and not believe me but there's quite a lot of evidence now that you know people can suffer post-traumatic growth you know that when something awful happens to them that that there's a that they value life more they make more more solid friendships uh they have a better sort of outlook on life and i think you know i'm lucky as, as somebody who's had a big trauma that i, I can feel that mm. and and you know if somebody was to say you know we will turn back the clock or we'll give you your legs back I, i'd probably refuse because it's so much a part of who i am now yeah and 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 it's funny for, for some people to hear that, uh, you know, from their own experience, it would be completely different. But it's such an individual thing mm. by, by all accounts. Really, really interesting speaking with you. The, the book is called Hybrid Humans, Dispatches from the Frontiers of Man and Machine. 
and and in it Harry uh, talks about his own experiences what is it like coming to terms with it and and the technology that's made him hybrid as well as meeting other people who are coming to terms with this new age of of humans themselves Harry great pleasure speaking with you thanks for your time thank you it strikes me as um as a fascinating quirk that the future archaeologists of the world will be looking back at this period and marking with interest that this was uh, the period of transition between purely organic skeletons and and uh, organic silicon and metal skeletons that we will presumably be leaving in the future. 